are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. We're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hope everybody's having a solid Wednesday afternoon. Lance, how you doing today, my man? This Wednesday has flown by, Noah. I mean, hump day is going great for me right now in the studio. I'm still away at the mothership in Sylacauga at Radio Alabama headquarters, so still joining you via Skype, but man, it feels good to be on the mic. It feels good to be talking some sports because we creep ever so closer to SEC Media Days, which is actually how I want to start off the show. SEC headquarters just recently released some information for SEC fans about SEC Media Days. They put out a graphic. On social media, this was as of an hour ago, they said, hey, SEC fans, you can enjoy wall-to-wall coverage of the 2021 SEC kickoff presented by Regents on the SEC Network July 19th to the 22nd, including 46 hours of original programming beginning Monday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. If you choose to visit the event, a designated area will be available outside the Hyatt Regency Birmingham Winfrey Hotel for fans interested in observing the arrival of their favorite coaches and players to SEC football media days. Due to COVID guidelines, the area will require that fans remain distanced from those entering and exiting the hotel. Fans will not be permitted inside the hotel, and there will be no autograph opportunities during the 2021 event. Long story short, no fans at SEC media days. And, you know, that's to be expected based on the fact that they were throwing out just a month or so ago, hey, we're going to have some different guidelines this this year because of uh, COVID protocol and things like that. So that's to be expected. I understand that. I like I don't I don't have a problem with it. That's chill. That's cool. I'm just excited to be there, man. On the flip side, and I get that and it's not a huge deal, but on the flip side. Here's my question. What message does it send that the conference is okay with full-fledged, full-capacity in football stadiums literally a month later? Yeah, yeah. It's um, There's been a lot of hypocrisy uh, throughout the last year or so when it comes to guidelines and regulations and what you can and can't do and things like that. So um, I've kind of become numb to it at this point. It's just kind of been expected, honestly. So to, to literally say hey, we're going to have all these different regulations at media days uh, in July, and then literally in se- to, to kick off uh, early September, we're going to have 100,000 people jam-packed into our conference's stadiums. You know, it's, it, it's, it doesn't make sense, but at the same time, I've gotten to the point where I'm not necessarily frustrated over it anymore. I'm just kind of cool with it. And, uh, and if, I'm, if I'm able to participate... Um, for me personally, I'm just excited to be there. Um, but you're right. Yeah, it does, it does not make a whole lot of sense. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line, 334-564-1840. What are your thoughts on the SEC closing fans off 
from SEC Media Days, at least in the traditional manner that fans have been allowed in the past. That is not allowed this year. We want to hear from you once again. Five reasons why Auburn won't finish fifth in the SEC. Yet again, another prediction is out there that Auburn will be finishing behind Ole Miss, Texas A&M, LSU, and of course Alabama. Fifth in the SEC West is where the 24-7 sports reporters have this Auburn team pegged to land in this upcoming year's season. Once again, if you've listened to this program, you know that I think Auburn is going to finish much better than fifth in the SEC West. Phil still has Auburn at fifth in the SEC West. Most places have Auburn at fifth, no better than fourth. Maybe I've only seen one outlet say fourth. And as we go through SEC media days, I wouldn't be shocked if we see the media predict Auburn to finish fifth. So I decided let's put together a list today of five reasons why Auburn won't finish fifth in the SEC. Lance, start with no, start with uh, start with one of them on your list. I didn't rank mine in any particular order, so I, I didn't want to say number one on your list. So just one of your five reasons. I ranked mine, and I'll start with number five. But these are these are kind of interchangeable. I didn't necessarily have a set guideline as to how I ranked these. Uh, at number five, I have the Ole Miss defense. This is something that Dylan pointed out before we went on air, and I really liked his take on this. Is like I don't, but he doesn't believe, and neither do I. I don't think Ole Miss is going to be better than Auburn this season simply because that defense is atrocious and when. Whenever Auburn and Ole Miss match up, I think Auburn's going to win that game. It's at home. I think Ole Miss is definitely going to struggle. And then on the flip side, if you've got an offense that is that is uh, that is inconsistent at times, and what I mean by that is Matt Corral having t- uh, two games where he threw more than five interceptions. I don't think that's happening this year, but it's it's definitely a turnover prone offense. I I have my concerns with this Ole Miss team, but that defense, man, I don't see them stopping anybody, and I I think they're I think they're going to struggle a little bit. I think they are going to struggle a little bit, and I think Auburn eventually, at the end of the day, is a, a better team than them, and will finish better on their schedule. So that's my number five. Granted, they returned nine starters on that side of the football, but here are some interesting statistics about Ole Miss's defense last year. 38.3 total points allowed per game last season. That was towards the bottom of the nation, not just the bottom of the conference because it was dead last in the conference. It's towards the bottom of the nation. You also look at 5.3 yards per carry. So on average, it took two handoffs just to get a first down against Ole Miss. Opponents completed 68% of their passes, which is the worst over the last seven years for an Ole Miss defense. Opponents averaged 6.7 yards per play against Ole Miss. Once again, on average, it took two plays for opposing offenses to get a first down against Ole Miss. That tally right there also was the worst for an Ole Miss defense in the last seven years. And then another total that is the worst for the Ole Miss defense in the last seven years, 16 sacks by the defense. That was a whopping 1.6 sacks per game. And, of course, skewed a little bit because they only played 10 games. So maybe you could have said that back in 2016 when they only had 20 sacks or maybe in 2018 when they only had 22, it was probably comparable to those years. But one thing is for sure, last season's Ole Miss defense is the worst Ole Miss defense we've seen in the last seven seasons since really Hugh Freeze was getting things going back in like 2014 around that time period, 2013, 2014. This is the worst Ole Miss defense that we saw a year ago. What confidence can one have that this group actually substantially improves? And the other side of that is substantial improvement would be this defense only giving up 30 points per game, and that's still horrible. 
So even substantial improvement for the Ole Miss defense still is a horrible defense. Yeah, that's what I was going to say whenever you said they returned nine starters. It's like, I'm a big returning production guy. I think that definitely helps improve your team overall. But at the same time, I don't think I want nine starters returning from one of my worst defenses in the past decade. I, I wouldn't want that, even though I think they could potentially improve just a little bit. But like you just said, it, a small improvement or even a major improvement still puts them as one of the worst defenses in the conference. So I wouldn't trust them to get past Auburn, nor do I trust them to get past a few teams on their schedule. And something else interesting to note is about their overall schedule, not just SEC play. Like They're going to run into some interesting teams in non-conference play, and I'm specifically talking about Liberty. That team can score a lot of points. Like I don't see them going and beating Liberty and beating Auburn as well. I think it's definitely going to be a tough out for, for Ole Miss defensively this year if they cannot get their stuff together I want to go to one of mine on my list and then I'm sure you may have this on yours as well so we could talk about it and cross it off on yours also but talking about defenses I'm going to say Auburn's defense is a reason why this team will not finish fifth in the SEC West but in fact they will finish much higher than that Derek Mason I believe is going to be able to do more with this set of players from a scheme perspective than what Kevin Steele did with this defense a year ago. If you go back and watch Auburn last season, primarily they ran the nickel. So four down linemen, two linebackers, five defensive backs. The 4-2-5 last year for Auburn hurt Auburn tremendously in terms of stopping the run. Last year we're giving up 4.2 yards per carry, which was their worst mark since 2015 when they gave up 4.5 yards per carry. Defensive line also gave up 163 rush yards per game. That is the worst mark since, once again, 2015 when they gave up 183 rush yards per game. Auburn was able to run the nickel with – Auburn was able to run effectively the nickel defense when they had Derrick Brown and Marlon Davidson because the defensive line was good enough to handle – less players in the tackle box behind them at linebacker. They were able to handle the opposing offensive lines and have all of that pressure on them because Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson were good enough. Last year, there was no Derek Brown. There was no Marlon Davidson. The defensive line did not have transcendent talents on the defensive line. They didn't have the best defensive linemen to walk through the doors at Auburn University. They didn't have that last year. They were young. They were inexperienced. And four down linemen are not enough to hold down the fort against opposing offensive lines and opposing formations that most of the time in college football now feature a tight end, meaning that there were six guys that could block on the other side of the football. Six beats four, I'm sorry. And then on top of that, you only have two linebackers, so now you've got even numbers and it's six on six. That's the edge to the offense every day of the week, every day of the week. And that's why Auburn was getting gouged a ton last year. It wasn't because Auburn didn't have talent. Auburn has one of the best linebacking cores in this league between Owen Papo and Jacoby McClain. I actually think they have some good defensive linemen as well. I think Derek Hall, Kobe Wooden, I think those are guys that can succeed. I think in this new defense, Tyrone Truesdale will find his spot along with new guys like Tony Fair. There's talent on the defensive line. I do believe that they weren't used correctly last year, and that's why they were getting gouged. Simply put, they were outnumbered. Posing offenses 
would line up in the box, Auburn wouldn't stack it. This year, Derek Mason's going to right the ship a bit. There's too much talent on this defense for it to not be a top four unit in the SEC. That's where I'm going with it. Top four unit in the SEC statistically in these categories. I think that is a big reason why Auburn will finish better than fifth, namely when you talk about them playing opposing teams like LSU, like Ole Miss, who were not very good defensive teams last year. It's going to keep Auburn in ball games early on in the season when they're still trying to figure things out on the offensive end, like the Penn State game, even the LSU game. If Auburn's still trying to bring this new offensive scheme along, the defense is going to give them a chance to win those games. I like this Auburn defense a lot. And then something else to mention about that defensive line last season is they, they definitely did have their injuries up front. They definitely did have some issues with those edge rushers not being 100% healthy throughout the season. That actually is my number four, uh, my number four reason for this Auburn team to finish higher than fifth in the SEC West is this defense. I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't know if I've said this on air, but I'm going to say it in case it happens just so I can say I'm right. I just, just for fun. I think Auburn will be better at defending the pass than they will be defending the run this season. And I'm not saying that they're not talented. Like you said, I think Derek Mason's going to be able to use this, these guys correctly. There's talent on this roster, but I have so much faith in this back end and I have so much faith in these linebackers and pass coverage. I am in I am obnoxiously confident in the secondary. They've got a lot of depth. They've got a lot of talent returning. I am so high on some of these guys. I think Smoke Monday is going to have a solid senior season. I'm expecting big things out of him. I'm expecting him to cut out all the different deep balls that he gave up over his tenure. I'm I'm excited, man. Uh, the defensive line, though, is where I have my concerns because I've said it a few times on this show. Auburn didn't get home last season. I think they've got the guys to do it. I think they've brought in some transfers that can do it, and I think they brought in some guys that can actually plug some of those running lanes. Uh, guys like Tony Fair from UAB. I think Auburn's going to be better as a unit this season, and I think statistically they will improve from where they were last season. I believe they were giving up 100, somewhere around 160 rushing yards per game. Some Somewhere around there last season I think that's going 163. to improve 163 I think that's going to improve but I think Auburn's going to be much better at defending the pass than they are stopping the run but overall as a unit I think they are going to improve dramatically and it's going to help Auburn get higher than fifth in the SEC West Note on the scheme here real quick Derek Mason last year at Vanderbilt blitzed 41% of the time that was 25th in the country. You want to talk about getting home? You want to talk about getting sacks? Last year, in 11 games, Auburn had 26 sacks, which, believe it or not, was only two less than the defensive line that did have Derek Brown, that did have Marlon Davidson on it the year before in 2019, where they only had 28 sacks. Auburn hasn't been getting home for the last two years. They weren't getting sacks in 2019 they had a worse mark in sacks per game in 2019 than they did in 2020 you want to know what's going to help that blitzing and this defensive coaching staff likes to blitz 41 percent of the time at Vanderbilt Derek Mason was sending guys via the blitz to try and generate pressure I think you see that here at Auburn I think they're going to be aggressive and between the amount of talent, they're going to be able to switch through some different things formationally, whether it's 3-4, whether you're looking at a 2-4-5 defense. There's a lot of different things that this defense can do schematically. Lance, before we go to break, give, uh, give everybody another reason why Auburn won't finish fifth in the SEC West. My number three reason is three of four Auburn's biggest threats are at home. 
you look at uh, you look at the Georgia game, you look at Alabama, and then you look at apparently everybody thinks Ole Miss is going to be good, so I penciled them in there as well. I think Auburn can potentially, if they if they get hot, take two of those games. I think they can win against Ole Miss pretty handily, and I can see them taking one of those games against Georgia or Alabama, depending on how hot they are. But you know, it's 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 really easy to finish higher than fifth in the SEC West if you're able to take down people that are higher than fifth in the SEC West at home. I think that's definitely going to boost Auburn's numbers in the conference. And it, it, it everything lines up, and we'll get to more of the reasons later on in the show, but everything lines up to prove that Auburn should have – at minimum, an eight and four type of season. Like they should, they should be sitting at fourth or higher in the SEC West. Let's take a quick break here, but just want to remind everybody the number to call 334 321 1390, text line at 334 564 1840. What are your thoughts on SEC media days? No fans traditionally, like, like they typically are, that not allowed this year. That's not happening. What are your thoughts on that? Also, give us a reason why you think Auburn will finish better than fifth in the SEC West. That's what we're talking about today. When we come back, we play coach coordinator fire. I've got some fun additions to that weekly game that we play here on On the Line. We'll be back in just a moment. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central, Alabama. Number to call 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. Find Lance and I on Twitter at Point Gardner at Dawn Pound. Coming up at 2.30, we've got a pre-recorded conversation with Zach Blackerby of the Locked on Auburn podcast. Lance spent some time with him earlier today, and we'll play that conversation once again coming up at 2.30. Get some of his insights on the latest going on with the Auburn football program as we get ready to go into media day. Xavion Capers, where does he fall on the depth chart and much more? We'll talk about all that coming up at 2.30 with Zach Blackerby of the Locked On Auburn podcast. Segment two of the show today, Coach Coordinator Fire, our weekly game that we have played throughout the offseason here on Wednesdays. Eventually, we'll have to go back to the traditional version of start bench cut, Lance, because I'm running out of good combinations of coaches here. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but I'll tell you what, man. These two today I think are actually kind of interesting. I'm excited to get through them. One's filled with a whole lot more optimism. The other one's filled with a whole lot more disappointment. But we'll start off with the first one, which is actually the one that's about optimism. Coach coordinator fire. You choose one to be the head coach. You choose one to be the coordinator, whether it's offense or defense, and you choose one to let go. This is the trio right here. New Auburn head coach Brian Harson, New South Carolina head coach Shane Beamer, and new Tennessee head coach Josh Heupel. Yeah, I think I think for me, I got to go with Harson as the head coach. And then it was kind of a toss-up there for a second between Beamer and Heupel. And then I had to take a look at both of their track records. Shane Beamer, uh, you know, he was, he was the uh, assistant head coach and the tight ends coach at Oklahoma from 2018 to 2020, but he wasn't the actual OC. Uh, but you look at Heupel's tenure, and he was the OC at Missouri, UCF, and Oklahoma. Uh, let's take a look at two thousand. He was at Oklahoma from from 2011 to 2014. They averaged 39 and a half points per game in 2011. They averaged 38 in 2012. 
32 in 2013 and 36.4 in 2014. I think those are all pretty good numbers. At Missouri, he was there, I believe, from 2016 to 2018. Missouri averaged 31 and 37 in his two seasons at Missouri. And then UCF, they averaged 43.2 and 43.4 points per game, respectively, in his two seasons. Oh, well, he was also there last year, and they averaged 42.2. So he's he's had some pretty dang good offenses. He's never had an offense score less than about 31 points a game. He's been solid. So if I'm if I'm picking here, I'm going Brian Harson as my head coach, even though he's had a pretty decent track record as an OC as well. I'm going Harson head coach, Hypel as my coordinator, and I'm letting Shane Beamer go. I went in a different direction than that. I, I did go Harson as head coach because at this point in his career, looking at this trio of coaches, Harson has the best and the most successful experience. Amongst among these three coaches as a head coach, I think he has shown, especially when you're comparing the group of five trajectory that Heupel was on at UCF, considering his last season there, he goes six and five, six and six. Brian Harson has has repetitively he's won at Boise State over and over and over again. I think Brian Harson has proven through his eight years of being a head coach or, or however long it's been. He has shown over a longer period of time that he's better at managing a program. So I went with Brian Harson to be head coach. I like the way just seeing firsthand with what he has done here at Auburn already throughout the offseason, what we see and what we hear about. I like the culture. I like the vibe that's being brought into the program. I like the organization. I like Auburn's approach now with Brian Harson here as opposed to the previous coaching staff. So I like Harson as the head coach. But I went with Shane Beamer as OC, and I understand the track record that Heupel has as – an offensive coordinator in the past and as an offensive mind. But I also don't want to sit here and discredit Shane Beamer's experience at Oklahoma and being with Lincoln Riley during that time, even even the close proximity that he has to Bob Stoops. The program's still very closely tied to Bob Stoops. I have to believe that this guy has to know something about offense considering he's been at Oklahoma for the past three seasons. And Oklahoma consistently one of the best offensive teams in all of college football. It also tells me a lot that he was considered to be the associate head coach at Oklahoma. He wasn't just the tight ends coach. He was the associate head coach, as you pointed out, which tells me that he might be very solid at being the right-hand man for a guy like Brian Harson in this scenario. Between Harson, Beamer, and Heupel, I liked Beamer being the associate role, the coordinator role, a little bit more than Heupel, who's been a little bit more distant from that and has been in that head coaching role. Something about Beamer's track record at Oklahoma spoke to me a little bit more about Heupel's. I think that's okay. I think that's fair. I mean, both of these guys were able to get a little bit of time at Oklahoma, and we know how good Oklahoma has been over the past few seasons offensively, actually for quite some time now offensively. So I, re- I respect that. I respect that. And But I would say if I'm looking at Beamer and he was the associate head coach, I would feel more comfortable putting him, if I were in this co- coach coordinator fire uh, scenario, I'd feel more comfortable honestly putting him as head coach in that case. Because if he's he's shown his ability to potentially be that guy, I think it's the reason why South Carolina hired him to be the head guy. Uh, so I would probably, I would feel comfortable doing that. But if, none of these guys I think are, are a bad choice uh, to necessarily put uh, I wouldn't. I'm. I'm. I'm nervous to say anywhere because I don't know how good Heupel could potentially be. But Harson and, and Beamer have shown the ability to be the head coach, so I really like all three of these guys. 
See, the Beamer's the one that I didn't even consider for head coach. Heupel's at least done it, right? Beamer hasn't done it yet. So I, I would say that there's not a bad option for coordinator, but I, I I wouldn't I would not have dreamt to put Beamer ahead of Harson or Heupel at this point as a head coach amongst this trio. I think that's it, that's fine. That's fine. Let's move on to the next one then. The next trio. This is the trio of disappointment, as I talked about earlier. <laughs> Jim Harbaugh, James Franklin, Kirk Ferentz. Honestly, uh, I, I looked at some of these guys. I looked at some of their track records, and uh, I'm not really comfortable with any of these guys putting them putting them anywhere. You know, <laughs> I I think if I had to choose uh, a head coach, I'd probably go somewhere between Ferentz and Franklin. I think I, I think I would like to to put Ferentz. Uh, as as my head coach, just simply how long he's been in the game, and he's been able to sustain uh, a, pr- a pretty good amount of success with the Iowa Hawkeyes. Um, been quite a long time since he's had a losing season. Yeah, he's uh, he's been able to hold his own there at Iowa, and he's not been anything incredibly special. Like he's not been like a fan, like blow you out of the water, like fantastic Nick Saban, Dabo Swinney. Uh, Urban Meyer, yeah, he's he's the he's the eight wins a year kind of guy, and I'm I'm okay with that as my head coach. If I've got good coordinators to back him up, I'd be okay with that. And then you look at Jim Harbaugh and James Franklin potentially as coordinators, and uh, Harbaugh's never been an OC in his uh, in his uh, coaching career. Uh, but he's he's had some head coach experience in the NFL. I just don't like I just don't like what he's doing with Michigan right now, man. I think he he would be a candidate for head coach, but I do like Ferentz just a little bit what better. And, and then you look at James Franklin potentially at the as an OC, and he was an OC at Kansas State and Maryland, 2006 to 2007 for the Kansas State Wildcats, and then 2008 to 2010 for Maryland. I don't have the Kansas State numbers in front of me, but I'm going to be honest. The, that's not an incredibly impressive track record uh, uh, as an offensive coordinator. So I, I'm reluctant to pick Franklin as my OC, but as, considering I don't have another option, I would go. I was uh, head coach, uh, Kirk Ferentz as my, my head coach, and then I would have Franklin as my OC. What are your thoughts? I'm interested to see what you have to say about this. Here's what you should do. You should flip what you just did. Ferentz as the OC and Franklin as the head coach. Here's the reality okay. of it. Kirk Ferentz. He's not going to get you to the position wherever you're at, wherever you're at in college football. I don't think that he's going to get you into a position where you could compete for a conference championship, right? You look at his track record, though, you're 100% spot on. Kirk Ferentz is one of the most consistent coaches in college football. He's only had three losing seasons in 23 years as a head coach at Iowa. Most years, he's winning eight games. The guy's consistent. He's like Honey Nut Cheerios. You know what you're getting, okay? But James Franklin does have the ability, and he's a program builder. He built Vanderbilt up to to heights that we didn't think we'd see Vanderbilt before. Penn State pulled them out of the gutter. has gotten them to multiple 11-win seasons. So I like James Franklin maybe more as the program builder. And then Kirk Ferentz, who does have a track record as an offensive coordinator. Many, many moons ago, many, many years ago, he was the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens in the NFL. So I do like the idea, especially when you're talking about age here. Kirk Ferentz, 65 years old. Kind of seems like if he were to take a step down as a head coach, he'd move on to be an OC. But we got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we've got our pre-recorded conversation with Zach Blackerby of Locked on Auburn. We'll be back.
back on the line. Lance Dahl, Noah Gardner here with you, and we are now joined by a very special guest, Zach Blackaby, host of the Locked On Auburn podcast. Zach, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing well, doing well. Always enjoy being on the line with you guys. Absolutely, absolutely. So a uh, project that you and I have recently tackled is uh, we are now writing for USA Today's Auburn Wire, their Auburn uh, Auburn Tigers uh, college website. Yeah, auburnwire.com. USA Today reached out um, last week, and we both uh, we both started officially on Monday. We kind of did some stuff over the weekend, but yeah, yeah, it's been cool. It's been cool. It's like uh, we do everything together now, Lance. It has been a blast. <laughs> it really is. But I wanted to get your thoughts on an article that you wrote. I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, Demetrius Davis film room yeah. analysis that you had. You had some really interesting things to say about the quarterback. Give us, give, run down the article real quick. Tell us what you had to say. Sure. I, I think the gist of it is, and you know, I've been criticized by some folks by saying that uh, Demetrius Davis isn't going to be a day one passer in the SEC. I still believe that. But he can be a very, very special quarterback by the time it is his time on the planes, I, I think he's going to have a few years. Whether it's Bo Nix or Finley that's ahead of him, and his, you know, if it, his battle with with Finley is going to be interesting, his battle with Garner down the road is going to be interesting. So that'll be uh, that'll be fun to see. But you know, I I went back to a day and watched all of his snaps multiple times, and there's about five or six of them that I pulled out and I put those in the article at AuburnWire.com talking about Davis and what he's looking at during the plays. And he does what pretty much every young quarterback is taught to do, especially if you were like him and you're able to use the uh, use your legs to defeat defenses. But he gets the ball, he looks at his first read, and if it's not there, he tucks it and runs. And he is electric, he is slippery, and I think he's going to be a dynamic player uh, with his with his feet, and I think over time he's going to develop that that you know that arm too. But I think with that, uh, if if that guy's open, he found him, and then you know for the most part, he did a good job making quick decisions, and I think that's something that's very very important for a quarterback making decisions, and he's doing what he was taught and coached to do. And every now and then, like one of uh, the latter plays at A Day, and it's the last uh, last play that I put in the article, the film room at AuburnWire.com was. An example of him putting it all together. He's under center. He leans into the play fake, sails the run. As soon as he turns his head around, he gathers himself, and he makes a pretty difficult throw for a, for a true freshman there. And you look at it, and it's like, wow, okay, if he can do that even somewhat consistently, he could be a really, really good player by the time uh, it's his time to be the starter at Auburn. Yeah, it's something that uh, I really liked about the article, and I really liked about Davis at A-Day, and you and I were talking about this yesterday, is he, he looks like he is a really, really good decision maker already as a freshman, and if he's going, to, if he can develop that a little bit, he could potentially be something special. You know, a, a lot of people like to, uh, anytime a dual-threat quarterback comes into the program, they like to compare him Nick to Marshall. Nick, Nick Marshall, baby. Yeah, yeah he's going to be Thick Marshall. He's going to be the next guy that plays like Nick Marshall. But something that you and I were talking about yesterday on your podcast is I don't think a enough people appreciate what Marshall did for this program and we never may never see another quarterback like him come to Auburn yeah yeah I mean there's not many quarterbacks like Nick Marshall and the ones that 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 are I mean they're special they're very very special I mean Nick Marshall was more than just a guy that was really good with his feet I mean his decision making was good I think he was a better passer than a lot of people gave him credit for he was a leader that team hang on I mean they were they were grasping at every word that Nick said I mean he was he was the face of Auburn football and I think 
a lot of folks weren't able to appreciate that, especially during 2014, because so many people were enamored and ready for Jeremy Johnson to be the next guy. And we all kind of look back and it's like, yeah, we didn't appreciate Nick Marshall enough. I don't think there's any question about that. But I mean, the combination of his decision making and his it factor and his prowess and his athleticism and all those intangibles that we like to throw out there. I mean, it was a great timing for him, too. I mean, Auburn got really fortunate with Malzahn coming back, and that offense was something that folks hadn't really seen before, and that was really when defense is starting to kind of take a little bit of a step back based uh, based, on how offenses were improving throughout the SEC. I mean, a lot of different things happened for Nick Marshall to really pop in 2013 and 2014. And also, the roster around them was pretty special. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of guys that Auburn fans look back on fondly were on both of those teams helping them out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another interesting article that you wrote. Uh, you were talking about Zevion Capers and where does he fit in in Auburn's depth chart this season? Like you mentioned in the article, he, he was he was somewhat of a key piece for the Tigers last season, but he didn't have a whole lot of snaps compared to some of the other guys. And Auburn's bringing in Demetrius Robertson. They've got some other talented receivers on roster. Where does Capers fit in for you? That's a good question. That's a good question. And I quoted Noah in that article, um, actually. But it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that, okay, he was, what, fifth on the team last year in total snaps, Capers was, behind guys that aren't there anymore, uh, with the exception of Shedrick Jackson. Shedrick Jackson's the only returning guy that had more snaps uh, in game action than Capers did. But he missed spring, and he was not able to practice and play in front of um, this new coaching staff. And there's been a lot of hype around Elijah Canyon because the last two times he's been on the field for Auburn, he's been probably the best receiver. Kobe Hudson seems to be able to do a lot of different things. And then, yeah, like you said, with transfers and and things like that, he's kind of been the guy that's been lost in all of this. The emergence of Javaris Johnson is super intriguing and interesting. I think Capers, I mean, there's no way all of these guys are key guys in the offense. right? And I think Capers is going to be... Uh, one of the guys that gets left behind right. based on uh, based on how things are going right now. Right. Is there a guy in this receiver room that is a, that will play a Seth Williams type of role? Meaning, is he going to be Bo Nix's number one guy? Is he going to be that Bo looks to almost every single time? Is there a guy in this receiver room that can play like Seth Williams? Or do you think Nix is going to spread the ball around a little bit more? And is that a good thing? Uh, I think there, there's pros and cons to both of them. As far as like stature and the type of receiver, I don't know if there is a guy like Seth Williams on this team. But as far as like being Bo Nix's number one guy, I bet Javaris Johnson leads Auburn in targets at the end of the season. That's kind of where I've been. Um, what what I've been saying. I think Kobe Hudson is going to be relevant. Obviously, Robertson is going to be, I think he's going to be used as kind of a big play guy, and then, you know, 15-yard passes, that intermediate game that Auburn fans have really missed for the last eight seasons. I think he's got a chance to be really, really good. And, you know, Justin Ferguson with the Auburn Observer, he did a film room on Robertson a few days after he committed and really highlighted um, how good Robertson is in the intermediate game. So I think that's going to be a big thing, but... If I had to guess, like, is there a Seth Williams in regards to who is Bo's favorite target? I think it's Javaris Johnson. Uh, he'll do damage to uh, defenses in different ways. He's not going to be on the outside. He's going to be a lot of, you know, quick passes underneath. But uh, Auburn has seen that in the past, and I think they're okay with it.
Another thing that you wrote, and I thought this was a really interesting piece, was you you had you showed Auburn's best individual rushing performers against each SEC team. And I want to kind of go through the list here because I think it's really interesting. Okay. Let's start off at the top with Florida. Ronnie Brown has the most rushing yards, or the best performance rather, against Florida. 163 rushing yards and two touchdowns back in 2002 when Auburn lost. 23 to 30. I yeah, just kind of think I, that's interesting. Yeah, I was surprised going through some of these. And, of course, Auburn doesn't play Florida too often now. But I was surprised some of these had really, really productive rushing attacks, but Auburn lost. So this was one right. of them. Yeah, Florida back in 2002. Right, and there's some definitely some interesting running backs on this, on this uh, list, and we'll get to those in a second. LSU, Kenny Irons, 2005, 218 rushing yards and one touchdown. Auburn actually lost that game as well, uh, yeah. 17 to 20. Yeah. I don't think Kenny Irons is a running back that Auburn fans talk about enough. I, I think, think he's kind do. of forgotten a little bit. Yeah, whenever you go and look at Auburn's uh, rushing leaders, like statistically, he's he is up there. He's in that top ten. Yeah, he's and, a guy that I forget about a lot. Yeah, and he had the best performance against LSU, and there's another school. I forget which one, but he's on this list again. Kentucky Wildcats, Cam Newton. I've heard of him. 2010, yeah, he's, he, was, he was okay. He was all right. 198 rushing yards and four touchdowns. Auburn did win that game, but it was a close one, 37-34. Yeah, if Cam doesn't have that type of night, um, it's it, – I mean, Auburn's 2010 chances. Yeah, I mean, Auburn doesn't win a national championship. It's I'm crazy. Gonna be, I'm going to be honest with you, and this may sound awful. I would have not thought that Cam Newton would have would have held more than one record against an SEC team on this on this list. I would have thought it would have been a running back, honestly. Yeah, I think he's got. Um, I think he's got two. The next one, South Carolina. Yes. It's also Cam Newton. 176 rushing yards and three touchdowns. Auburn won that game in 2010, 35 to 27. And this is the first one. This isn't the SEC championship game. This right. was the first. Uh, the first. The regular season game. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it's only 175 rushing yards, but oh well, whatever. Yeah. And then Vanderbilt, Cameron Petway. 2016 had 173 rushing yards obviously his last attempt came on that really long run where he could have scored a touchdown but right. I believe pulled his hamstring I believe yeah. is what it was yeah his he grabbed his quad you know you know how Gus was with injuries we never really found out exactly what it was but yep. we never saw the same Cam Petway again and it's sad but you forget how dominant Cam Petway was and as we go through this list if we go through the full thing he's on it uh, more than once which is amazing to think about Auburn won that game 23-16. to Georgia Bulldogs, Kenny Irons there actually uh, holds the record. 179 rushing yards, two touchdowns. Auburn won that game in 2005, 31-30. Again, just a guy you don't really think about in terms of great Auburn running backs, and I think people need to give him a little bit more respect. Now this next one, Lance, when you think about pure just individual solid performances – this one stands above it all. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty dominant perform, performance. Missouri, obviously, Trey Mason in the 2013 SEC Championship game, 304 rushing yards and four touchdowns. It's Auburn not ended real. Up winning that is that just game. not real. That's 59 to 42 is a, is a is a Madden or NCAA 14 type of final <laughs> score. 304 rushing yards. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I'm surprised that is that the only one that Mason has on this list. Yeah, I, I was expecting him to be on a couple, but that's the only one I think. Dang. Dang. Tennessee Volunteers, Nick Marshall in 2013. Auburn won that game 55-23. to 23. Marshall had 214 rushing yards and two touchdowns. I kind of remember this game for the Chris Davis muff punt return that he took back for a touchdown. I, I didn't really remember Marshall popping off in this game, but obviously he did. This was a game where like Auburn just wasn't going to pass the ball. I think they threw eight pass attempts all game, and like I think two of them were like really long passes, but... 
my uh, my friend after this game, I think Auburn was at game day the following week. I forget who they played. But uh, I just remember my buddy, he made a big sign with Gandalf on it, and it said, we shall not pass. And I thought that was, <laughs> I always remember that because I was after that Tennessee game. That's fantastic. That's that's really funny. It's clever. Mississippi State Bulldogs, Tank Bigsby. This surprised me. Our boy Tank, like how? 192 rushing yards in 2020. Auburn obviously won that game 24 to 10. I guess right we before. just we didn't talk about this game after it happened yeah, because we, Gus got fired. Yeah, it was just a really, really low time in Auburn athletics. Nobody yeah. was really talking about anything positive. And I honestly had no idea this man almost ran for 200 yards against Mississippi State to close out the season. It and then quiet. I was almost fired like two or three days later. It's crazy. Yeah, right. It's absolutely crazy. Ole Miss, Cameron Petway. Our boy there Cameron is. Petway, 236 rushing yards. One touchdown. Auburn won that game 40-29. to I actually remember this game quite a bit. I really liked it. I think Auburn's offensive game plan was really good coming into this game. The passes that Sean White took, he didn't miss on. He was efficient. And then Cameron Petway was just a bowling ball. Well, he's running stop. like eight yards a pop on first down. I mean, he, they just uh, that, that opens up a lot of your playbook. It does. It does. Arkansas, Cameron Petway, 2016, 192 rushing yards, two touchdowns. Auburn won that game 56-3. to I believe this is the game where Auburn ran for like way over 500 yards and Stanton Truett had like a hat trick of touchdowns or something like that. It was a, it was a fantastic game for Auburn. This is like the pinnacle uh, of Gus Malzahn's rushing attack. Like, the, if it works, this is that that's that's proving that it can work. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Alabama Crimson Tide, our boy Carnell Williams back in 2003, 204 rushing yards, two touchdowns. Auburn won that game 28-23. to Is that the first time we've seen Carnell on this list? Yep. Wow. Yep. Ronnie had one. Carnell had one. Wow. Cameron Artis Payne has the most rushing yards against Texas A&M for Auburn in that 2014 game that Auburn lost. 221, two touchdowns. Again, 41 to 38 was the final score there. I don't even want to talk about this game. Yeah, uh, respect to Artis Payne, but I just do not want to talk about that game. That fumble in the end zone, you can pause it and you can see you can see Cameron Artis Payne have all 10 fingers on the football and they somehow gave possession to A&M. So. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. What is the what is the biggest surprise to you on this list? Is it How be often Petway? Cam Petway is on there? What could have been had Petway not gotten hurt? Would we have ever seen Carryon Johnson emerge? That's as a great that, question. As that leading rusher in 2017. That's a great question, I, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you know, it had that quad issue, and then in uh, you know the following year, it was like he was dealing with like plantar fasciitis or something like that, and then that's uh, that's all she wrote. That is all she wrote. Quickly, before I let you get out of here, you wrote an article ranking Auburn's quarterbacks this season. <laughs> you want to go ahead and tell everybody who you have at number one so just everybody knows we're not picking T.J. Finley to win the starting job. Uh, Sawyer Pate. Sawyer Pate is number Our one. Our boy Sawyer Pate. Our boy Sawyer Pate. Finley is number two. Nix is number three on the depth chart. Go check it out. No, he is joking. He's, he is, we're joking. We're kidding. He's joking. We are kidding. It is uh, Bo Nix, obviously. We uh, we play jokes around here. We do play That's jokes. who we are. No, yeah, I think it was Bo, Finley, Davis, um, Lin- I put Trey Lindsey above Grant Loy, and then, and then Sawyer Pape, yeah. Love it, love it. What a crew. Zach, tell everybody where they can find all of your great content. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's all written at AuburnWire.com. Of course, Lance has some stuff there. Then Locked on Auburn is available every weekday morning. It drops at 3 o'clock Central Time uh, for your daily dose of Auburn goodness. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at ZBlackerby. Thank you, buddy. Thank you.
167 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call 334-321-1390. Text line 334-564-1840. Big thank you there to Zach Blackaby for taking some time with us earlier today to pre-record that interview with Lance. Zach Blackaby of the Locked On Auburn podcast talking about a lot of great stuff, Lance. I really enjoyed all of that great content. But before we move on to the show, let's take a look at what's on TV tonight. Tonight on CBS at 7, it's the third episode of the new season of Big Brother. Over on Fox, their lineup is cooking shows with Master Chef at 7. And then on a new episode of Crime Scene Kitchen at 8, the bakers head back to the kitchen for a new dessert challenge. Some movie selections for this evening. Let the debate begin. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Watch it tonight at 7 on AMC. Everybody loves the Minions. Despicable Me Too is on Freeform at 7. In live sports, the NBA Finals is back with Game 4 between the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Suns lead 2-1 in the series, with tonight's game having the chance to tip the scales in favor of Phoenix or tie the series. Catch Game 4 at 8 on ABC. The WNBA All-Star Game is on ESPN at 6. CONCACAF Gold Cup Soccer is back to Group A with the Trinidad and Tobago against El Salvador at 6.30 on FS1. And then following it at 9, Mexico and Guatemala wrap up the night. And that's what's on TV tonight. Lance, some great information there with Zach Blackerby in your pre-recorded interview I'm shocked as well how many times Camp Petway is on that list. Yeah, uh, he was definitely a, a significant factor for Auburn in 2016. And actually, I don't think he emerged until that Mississippi State game because Johnson got injured early on uh, in that state game. And then and then Petway was finally able to come in and, and he was able to prove what he was made of. So it's interesting, had Carrion not ever been injured, um, we may have never seen Petway, and had Petway not have gotten injured and just kind of fallen off in 2017, we would have never seen Johnson. Auburn had some uh, a, a dual a dual threat there. Very talented running backs in Johnson and Petway. Uh, what, what could have been, man, if both of them had stayed healthy? Only a couple of minutes left here in hour number one, and I'm going to wrap up hour number one here going through the list of players, the list of student-athlete attendees for SEC Media Days that was released about 30 minutes ago. We got the full list right here, and let me tell you, there's a lot of big guys on this list, 13 offensive linemen and defensive linemen out of 28 possible players only two players from each team attending sec media days back to kind of the old format there let's run through it right here for alabama fidarian mathis the senior defensive lineman and then the junior wide out john metzi the third will be going for the crimson tide arkansas will see senior offensive lineman myron cunningham and senior linebacker grant morgan Auburn's taking junior quarterback Bo Nix. That ought to tell you a little bit about the pecking order at QB. And then junior linebacker Owen Papo. Florida will be bringing with them defensive lineman Zach Carter and linebacker Ventrell Miller. Georgia taking JT Daniels at QB. And then defensive lineman Jordan Davis. Kentucky will be bringing offensive tackle Darian Kennard, one of the best left tackles in all of college football. And then defensive end Josh Pascal. LSU with offensive tackle Austin Deculus and defensive back Derek Stingley Jr. Ole Miss 
quarterback Matt Corral and defensive back Jalen Jones. Other Mississippi school, Mississippi State here with linebacker Aaron Brule and wide receiver Austin Williams. Missouri going to have defensive lineman Akeel Byers and offensive lineman Case Cook tagging along. South Carolina with Kingsley Enigbari at defensive end and then tight end Nick Muse. Tennessee wide receiver Vellis Jones Jr. and defensive back Alante Taylor. Texas A&M with Kenyon Green, also one of the best left tackles in the game. And defensive lineman DeMarvin Leal and Vanderbilt with offensive lineman Bradley Ashmore on the offensive line and defensive lineman Davion Davis. So there's that full list there from the SEC. We'll talk about that in our number two, among also getting back to our five reasons why Auburn will finish better than fifth of the SEC West. We'll be back with our number two of On the Line coming up. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. Hour number two of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call 334-321-1390. We're taking your calls, all hour number two, as well as your text. Text us at 334-564-1840. That'll put you through to us here on On the Line, whatever is on your mind. I ended hour number one with a list of SEC Media Days attendees. We know who's going for Auburn. We know who's going for Alabama. We know who's going for everybody. 13, a combination of 13 guys that play on the line of scrimmage, whether it be offense or defense, only three quarterbacks attending the event. I think that's to be expected with the amount of quarterbacks that have left the league over the last couple of years. Small amount of quarterbacks, large amount of big guys, almost accounts for half of the attendees that are there. 28 players are going, 13 of them are linemen going to this event, but Auburn taking linebacker Owen Papo and quarterback Bo Nix. Yeah, and it was kind of a storyline heading into the 2021 season for the SEC. Not a lot of quarterback production returning for a lot of these different teams, and it just kind of kind of goes to show. You mentioned uh, before before we went to the to the uh, the the top of the hour break there um, that that Bo Nix being selected for Auburn goes to show. Uh, where the pecking order is at for the Auburn Tigers, but it also goes to show for some of these other teams that they have not figured out their quarterback situation yet. At least, I, at least I don't believe they have. Some some of these different teams. Whenever you look at a team like Kentucky, you look at a team like uh, like Mississippi State, they're they're struggling there at quarterback, so they feel more confident in some of their other guys to bring them on as as leaders. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I'd kind of want to have my quarterback as a leader of my team, but again, a lot of these guys don't have quarterbacks that have either been in the league for a while or they don't they just straight up haven't named a starter and in another team to look at I think it's it's interesting is LSU 
They didn't bring Miles Brennan or Max Johnson. They brought an offensive tackle and then obviously Derek Stingley. That goes to show where that quarterback battle's at. So I'm 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 not mad at it. I respect it. It's just I'm surprised there weren't as many quarterbacks as as years past. Well, this has been said to me several times by multiple people. It's more of a storyline if Bo Nix doesn't go. So on the one hand, you you can say Bo Nix is a clear front runner and there's only three quarterbacks going to this entire event and Bo Nix is one of them. I think he is the clear front runner in the quarterback room and most people would not debate me on that. So it does say something that he's going, but it would also say even if there is a real position battle here at QB, it would say a lot more if he didn't go. Yeah, it probably would and and it's to be it would it's to be expected that um that that Bonix would be selected to to go um and you know honestly some of these other teams that didn't necessarily pick a quarterback I think it's I think it's okay to say you know maybe they haven't gotten their quarterback situation figured out I think that's obviously the case for LSU and Kentucky but some of these guys just may have a really young quarterback that they know is most likely going to be their starter like for instance Ken Seals is going to be the starter for Vanderbilt most likely uh, but they didn't they didn't bring him to SEC media days Texas A&M's probably going with Haynes King but they didn't bring him either uh, South Carolina, he Luke Doty was named the starter after fall camp, and they aren't bringing him. Missouri, Connor Basilak, uh, they they didn't bring him. So it's Will it, Rogers, Mississippi State. Will Rogers, Mississippi State. Uh, they decided to go with uh, with Austin Williams, the senior wide receiver, and then Aaron Brule, a junior linebacker. So it's not the end of the world. All those guys are super young. Yeah, yeah, it's not the end of the world. It's just the fact that all these different quarterbacks are just so young that the media days is meant to bring some of your seniors, some of your your leaders, some of your guys that that lead your program. And so it's to be expected. Something else I want to add about me today is it's about controlling your message. You're going to be asked a lot of questions. There are some teams in this league that generate more storylines, that generate more polarization, that generate more attention than others. And I think Auburn is one of those teams with the storylines that we've looked at through this offseason with Everything that surrounded Gus Malzahn, the quarterback situation, new coaching staff, there's a lot of eyes on Auburn going into this media day. If you don't bring Bo Nix, you can't control your message. You bring Bo Nix, you coach these guys up on what to say. You can control your message, and that's a big reason why here, the guy who just signed an, an NIL deal with Milo's, the face of your program, that, that's a big reason why he's going to media day. And I, and I do think that this is also a bit of a signal of intent that Bo Nix is leading the room. Other Auburn news out there. Jarrell Stinson, Auburn football commit. Now, he decommits from Auburn football. He was previously an Auburn commit, is what I should have said. But the Opelika defensive back, Jarrell Stinson, decommits from Auburn. He announced that 50 minutes ago on Twitter. And so now Auburn back down to five commits in this year's class. Did that change where they were ranked in the SEC? No, it didn't. It did not. They are still 14th in the SEC, and they are 74th nationally. Uh, I'm going to be honest. Uh, out of all the guys that Auburn could have potentially let go, um, this was not a guy that I would be concerned about letting go because Auburn's got uh, Auburn's got a four star in Jariner, and then they've got a borderline four star and Riley Ducker already in their class. To let one of their lower tier three stars go, uh, I think it's all right. It doesn't necessarily dent the class a little, but yeah, but really disappointed that that, that a uh, local kid from Opelika, Alabama. Uh, decided that he's going to be taking his talents elsewhere. Look at some of his other college offers. He had an offer from Florida, UCF, Duke, uh, Florida State, Kentucky, Nebraska, Ole Miss, Penn State, South Alabama, Tennessee, 
Troy, Vanderbilt, South Carolina. South Carolina did not offer him, but he's got a lot of offers from some respective programs. So he's going to be able to find find. Uh, he's going to be able be able to land on his feet and find a school that actually wants him. So I'm disappointed that he left, uh, specifically because he is a hometown kid. But it's not the worst. It's not the worst decommit in the world. I think that it's it's not. Uh, I, I don't want to grade how, how bad this is for Auburn, but I will say defensive back is a position of need for recruiting this year, 100%. You could see three guys out of that defensive backfield leave. You could see two quarterbacks leave this room, and, and they've already lost two quarterbacks, right? You think about the JUCO transfers that left the room recently. You lose Haddon. You lose Marco Domio. You originally were six deep going into this offseason. And now you really only have four guys, and you're probably going to lose two of them. I, I think Roger McCreary and Dreshawn Miller are going to take this step to the NFL after this year. And, and if not Dreshawn Miller, it may be Jalen Simpson or Nehemiah Pritchett. All four of these defensive backs at corner are draft eligible. And you know you're losing at least one of them. And then the guys that would have stepped into their place next season already left the program via transfer. It is a very thin position moving on down the line, depending on how many guys left the program after this season. And now to lose this commitment, this ramps up and ratchets up the pressure a bit at recruiting the cornerback position for Auburn in this recruiting class. Well, I think it does a little bit, but at the same time, are you really sad that you lost a 5'10", 160-pound kid that's a three-star? I mean, Auburn can recruit another cornerback that will that that's either his size or his his uh, his 24-7 sports ranking or just or better. Uh, I think Auburn could definitely go out and get a guy that's better. So uh, so respect to Gerald Darrell Stinson, respect to his college list, respect to his ability to play the game. But you know Auburn can can get another guy like this, and like you said, like the pressure's on. Like they've got to actually go out and do that. Got to get bodies. Yeah, you got to actually get guys in the in the room. But Auburn Auburn can get a guy like this. Auburn can get a like guy like this or better in the future. The only point I'm trying to make, and I I, I understand what you're saying, Auburn's going to recruit and, and, and get theirs on the recruiting trail. That happens. It's Auburn University. But the only point I'm trying to make is there's more pressure now because there's one less body at a spot that was already a need. Like There was already pressure at recruiting quarterback for Auburn this year with Stinson in the class, and he's been in the class for a little while. I mean, this was a Gus Malzahn commitment, and now he's gone. Now you have to go and do even more work. You, you're you you've taken a step back now, if you will. Like you were you were on one square on the board game, and now you have gone back one or two steps, and you still have to get to the same location at the end of the day in terms of bringing in new bodies. I really am curious at how many Auburn DBs leave after this year. In your mind, where do you think that that bar is set at? At least at the cornerback position. Ignore safety. Smoke Monday is gone as well, but. Ignore, ignoring safety, looking at the quarterback position, how many of the how many of these guys do you think actually leaves? Um, I think Jalen Simpson stays. I think um, let's see who else who else uh, McCreary's gone right. So who else would, for sure gone? Who else does Auburn have that could that could potentially leave after this season? Miller, Pritchett, Simpson. Miller, I think Dreshawn Miller could could potentially be another guy that leaves. I think Pritchett stays, and I think Simpson stays. So you think half the room's gone? Yes, I think I think yeah, half the room is gone. You're right. Yeah, they got to get bodies. Put Auburn in a tough spot. Yeah, you. They the Auburn's got to get bodies. Uh, I'm just saying that Auburn can get can get uh get get a guy that's just as talented as Stinson. So we 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 do have we have a text here from Specter uh, number to text three three four. 
Oh, I do not have the number right in front of me. Three three four five six four one eight four zero. Thank you so much. I was about to pull it up. Uh, Spectre <laughs> said, you're not making a good case. The light is still fra- flashing red. Again, that was from Spectre. If you want to text, give us your thoughts on Auburn's recruiting class. What do you think about the decommitment of Darrell Stinson, local Opelika cornerback product? Uh, it, this the the light for me is still yellow because we're not in full panic mode because it is still July. But at the same time, I think to your point, Noah, you're right. Auburn's got to be able to get bodies in there. They've got to be able to get a little bit of depth. I'm I'm just saying on the flip side of that, Auburn I believe will get that depth. Um, but it's it's not it's not Auburn. It, the fact still stands. Auburn just lost another a depth piece in the cornerback room. And I think he he's going to end up being a good football player. He's fast kid. He's got a lot of athleticism. This is this is a bummer for me. I it, I've you know been hearing a little bit of rumblings about it. So, but but it is a major. It, it's a bummer for me. I'm not I'm not thrilled about it. I, I think that this is bad news today. It's a little bit of a stifle to to some of the momentum that maybe we've been seeing for Auburn on the recruiting trail. Um, but still, best of luck to to Jarrell Stinson and he's opened it up and his his commitment. I mean, still could end up at Auburn. You know, you never know. And just best of luck to him. At the end of the day, it's about the kids finding their best fit and whatnot. Um, and where they want to go and play college ball. But let's go back to where we opened up the show. We did five reasons why Auburn won't finish fifth in the SEC West, why they will finish better than fifth in the SEC West. We've gone through a couple on our list. Lance, go to your next one. Okay, so before we went to break, I briefly touched on three of Auburn's four biggest threats are at home, and I'll touch on that quickly, and I'll get to my next one. Again, you get Alabama, Georgia, Ole Miss at home. Apparently, people think Ole Miss is going to be some world beater this season. I don't think that's true. I think they're going to be decent. I think they're going to win seven, eight games, but I don't think they're going to be fantastic. I think their schedule is definitely uh, difficult. And I think their defense is going to hold them back. But I think Auburn should win that game against Ole Miss. And then I think if they get hot, they can beat Georgia or Alabama at home. And the reason I say that, it may be like, well, that's a crazy take. Georgia and Alabama are really, really good programs. Yeah, but Auburn's had a lot of success against Alabama over the past decade at home. And then Georgia, I mean, if you want that game bad enough and you've beaten Penn State and LSU, you're coming in that game hot. I can see Auburn taking that one, uh, taking that one as well. I think it could be – it's a 50-50 matchup that – that would that's favorable simply because it's at home my next reason is it's an unpredictable sec west all around outside outside of maybe alabama which even then there are some question marks around the crimson tide not a lot of people return return quarterback play you look at arkansas they're trying to break in a new quarterback you look at lsu they're still battling battling it out in camp and they just lost their offensive line coach obviously there are some issues going on in that program behind the scenes i wouldn't be surprised if the quarterback uh, competition is another one of them you look at texas a&m they're breaking in a new freshman quarterback and they've got some offensive line issues you look at ole miss they've got a really solid offense overall but they've they're that defense man porous it's not good at all mississippi state uh, is probably going to be the worst team in the league this season and um you you look at auburn man they bring back so much talent and so much uh, so much production and i think this defense has a lot of depth to it I think Derek Mason's going to be able to do a lot of things with this defense, like you mentioned earlier in the show, versatility. I think they're they're going to be able to line up in a lot of different fronts, use a lot of different schemes, and they're going to be able to blitz and get to the quarterback. I'm really excited about this unit. And the offense, I think it takes a step forward whenever you look at what Mike Bobo's bringing in. I think this offense is going to be more efficient. I think Bo Nix is going to be more accurate. He's going to make better decisions with the football. I think this scheme is going to force him to do that. And then you look at Tank Bigsby in the backfield. I think that 
he is an exceptional talent. Uh, I think he's got, I, I wouldn't necessarily say he's got Heisman buzz, but he's pretty close to it. Honestly, if he stays healthy, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a little Heisman buzz towards the end of the season. So, you know, overall in, in the West, and even Alabama, you know, they've got issues with the quarterback and their defense has been continuously sliding. Can they, can they kind of hold that back? I can see I can see Auburn kind of getting past some of these teams that have some glaring issues, especially on the offensive side of the football. So that's my number two reason, an unpredictable SEC West. Next one on my list here, I'm going to go with a more diverse passing scheme. I think that you see, uh, maybe not modern, but a, a, an updated, a, a diverse route tree, maybe something needed to help develop the quarterback position I almost put quarterback development here but I think part of that QB development or a more important part of that QB development is Auburn becoming more unpredictable on the offensive side of the ball and a large part of that has to do with the route tree and bringing Bo Nix along in progressions when he's dropping back into the pocket making decisions faster making this a more unpredictable offense for opposing defensive coordinators to have to evaluate and that starts in the passing game for me because if you improve the passing game it's going to get easier to run the football 100 and tank bigsby's going to be able to eat regardless but it's going to make it easier for tank bigsby to eat if this passing game comes around so a more diverse passing scheme i think is what's going to be brought to the table today because you look at these two guys experience with quarterbacks they know how to develop them yeah my number one reason is mike bobo and i think and, and part of that reason is the passing scheme i think my Bo- mike bobo is going to be able to bring a lot of focus to this offense i think he's going to, to bring some of these guys together and actually make them run routes I think he's going to get the running lanes uh, I think he's going to be able schematically when whether it's it's zone it's zone runs or if it's just power runs I think he's going to be able to to schematically make this run game better and I think he's going to make Bo Nix better I think he's going to force him to make better decisions again I think the, the wide receivers are actually going to run routes and Nix is going to have options and I think this offensive line is going to improve under Mike Bobo and Will Friend so overall I think the offense is going to become more efficient now whether or not it scores more a a lot more points than than last year's team I'm not sure because I believe the offense is going to be a a little bit slower than it has been in the Gus Malzahn tenure but Mike Bobo I think is going to be able to do a lot of different things and I know that we've kind of said that in the past about different OCs like Chad Morris we thought was going to be the guy we thought he was going to be something special so that I think that is a a way to to play devil devil's advocate here is like you know uh, Auburn has not had a, a great run of success since Lashley at the OC position. Uh, what's Mike Bobo going to do that's different? And I think whenever you look at a guy like Bobo, I mean, he's he's had so much SEC experience and successful SEC experience uh, compared to some of the other OCs that Auburn's had in the past. So I, I'm excited to see what Bobo does. Uh, I think he's going to be able to do a lot of really good things for this offense, and that's what hold that's what's holding Auburn back. The defense will get its own. The defense will stop people. They've got depth. Derek Mason will have that unit ready to go. It's just the number one factor for me is whether or not, whether or not this offense can actually stay on the field and score a little bit more than they did last season. And I absolutely believe the pieces that they have uh, can do that. And all they need is a new coach to steer them in the right direction. And I think that coach is Mike Bobo. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we continue our Auburn football schedule analysis series. It's time for the Iron Bowl, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Up next, we'll tell you about what interesting factoids we found out about the Alabama Crimson Tide. We'll be back in just a moment.
happen in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564. 40 minutes left of the show. Auburn football schedule analysis series. Alabama Crimson Tide, the last one of our, our of our Auburn football schedule analysis series. Lance, you've graded out the Crimson Tide. Take us through it. Let's start at the quarterback position. I think it's really, really hard to grade Alabama's quarterback anything less than a B, um, simply because the that they've had such such a great run of success, um, even with quarterbacks that didn't necessarily fit their system over the past uh, seven or eight years. Um, I kind of flip-flopped, honestly, back and forth between grading uh, Bryce Young, the projected starter, as a, as a B or an A. Um, I think he's definitely an above-average talent. It's just the question is, is how much is this new system going to benefit him and how how well is he going to be able to perform? I think it's fair to say that he is among the best in college football. I think it's fair to say that this kid is worthy of an A-caliber grade, even though we've not seen a whole lot of him yet. So I've, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because I kind of flip-flop back and forth for a moment because he's so young and like at any other school in the country, even teams like Clemson, it's like if you're breaking in a freshman quarterback that's borderline never played before, it's like it's it, it would be hard to grade him as um, among the elite immediately. I think he possesses a lot of talent and the ability to be an A, but it may it is too early to tell if this guy is amongst the elite in college football. And I also think that it's so intricate in how we develop quarterbacks because I go back to Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts at Alabama was a very good quarterback, but he was not a very good passer. He was above average at, at his time at Alabama. I The amount of talent that was around him at Alabama – made him a more effective passer and the offense and the scheme, all those things combined made him a more effective passer at Alabama. Then you go to Oklahoma and it's the same kind of situation. Now he's doing a lot better in the NFL right now. I mean, he is, he is going to be the starting quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. So I don't want people to think that I'm over here disparaging Jalen hurts. But if you go back and watch him in college, big question mark around Jalen hurts would be, could he make the throws to win the games against the best teams on his schedule? And when he was the starting quarterback at Alabama, he did that one time. And he did that in the SEC championship when he had to come in for a hurt to a tongue of Aloha against Georgia and lead them back, which was a huge redemption. And I was super happy for Jalen Hurts. I thought that was awesome. But when I evaluate quarterbacks, if you're going to be in the elite tier of QBs in the country, I, t- I have to take into account, are you going to make the throws that are going to help your team win the football games against the best teams on your schedule the most elite because that that determines national championship or not 100 that that determines national championship or not and the last several quarterbacks that we've seen win national championships you go back to joe burrow you go back to tua you you look at last season with mac jones all those quarterbacks could do that it didn't matter who the opponent was they could make the throws that was necessary to beat the best teams in the country you get very few opportunities to do that. You have to make those throws. And we don't know enough yet about Bryce Young to say that he can do that. So I'm actually going with a B for Bryce Young. I'm not saying that he won't be able to, and I'm not saying that he doesn't have the ability or the potential. I just want to I, I just want to see him do it against somebody really good first. I think that's incredibly fair to say. And what I was kind of saying there is I think he's got the upside. Again, we just haven't seen him do it. So the reason I, I was kind of leaning towards A is because I believe that upside and that potential will turn into 
uh, I, I guess reality. But at the same time, though, we've not really seen a whole lot of him, and so it's hard to it's hard to say that. It's really hard to say that he's going to be able to do that if you haven't seen it. Uh, so I, I think that's incredibly fair to say that he's he's graded as a B. Let's move to this running back room. I have it graded as a B as well. You know, Alabama doesn't necessarily rely on running backs to get them to their to their SEC championships and their national title games. It's not their bread and butter. I mean, they have been able to run the ball pretty efficiently, but they've not been incredibly impressive. And the guy that's supposed to head this room is the six one, two hundred and thirty pound senior. Uh, Brian Robertson Jr. He's not done anything overly impressive during his time with the Crimson Tide, but I think he is going to be a decent back. And if Alabama wants to run the ball, I think he's he, I think he's above average in college football. He's got 1,300 total yard rushing yards in his career with the Tide, 15 total touchdowns last season behind Najee Harris, 483 rushing yards, six touchdowns, 5.3 yards per carry. Something interesting, Noah, that I think uh, I think you you may or may not have some numbers on as far as like his ability to get past uh, the the first level. I don't know if you've got anything on that, but you and I were looking at some making some graphics just a month or so ago, and we were looking at pictures of Brian Robinson Jr. and it was so hard to find just a clear cut picture of Robinson because he had what appeared to be a really hard time getting through the first level and getting away from contact. And you look at his longest run of the season last year, and it was only twenty one yards. And it's like you think, well, he was able to, to play really well in that Ole Miss game, but they were still able to wrap him up. He wasn't hitting the home run ball. And so my concern with this running back room is, is there a guy in this room that could hit the hit the long ball uh, that could come in in replacement for Robinson Jr.? And I don't know if they have that guy on roster, but if they're going to be relying on Brian to, to carry the workload, uh, I don't think they're going to be hitting it, rushing the ball a lot. So I've got this room graded as a B. Pro football focus loves Brian Robinson. Now, maybe that could be to an extreme, but I think what I'm taking away from what we've seen from Brian Robinson at this point, it's the same type of philosophy that I took with Bryce Young a few moments ago. We've seen some flashes, the potentials there, the abilities there. Now let's see it materialize. We've hardly gotten anything of Brian Robinson up to this point. Last year, Robinson had 91 carries for 490 yards. He averaged, or excuse me, 483 yards net. He only lost seven yards last year, which is impressive in itself. He had six touchdowns and averaged 5.3 yards per carry. You said something a few moments ago about the Alabama running backs not being, um, not being like exceptional, not being like great. Whereas I, I disagree with you a little bit there because I think that pretty much every running back that we've seen go through the door at Alabama over the last couple of years, at least through the Nick Saban tenure. There have been some that we've remembered just like as superstars, all-timers. Those are guys like Derrick Henry, Mark Ingram. Najee Harris definitely should be in that book. I hope that recency bias doesn't keep people from putting Najee Harris there or or people trying to refrain from recency bias because I think Najee Harris is actually the best running back we've seen in Alabama under Nick Saban, and there's a lot of information to suggest that. But the years where you have your Bo Scarboroughs or your Brian Robinsons now, or even like a young Najee Harris and stuff like that. I think part of the reason why we may not view them, we view them as a little bit more normal is because everything else at Alabama is so good, right? They've, they've got amazing wide receivers. They go in the first round. They've had amazing quarterbacks over the last couple of years. Their offensive lines are so great. So I think we have this tendency to try and, pick apart the team to say oh well this group's not as good thus in our minds it may register as oh they're just kind of above average in college football when in reality in terms of ability 
they may be absolute beasts. Yeah. And they're just not getting the opportunity to show that full-fledged at Alabama. But we got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll continue to flesh that thought out and talking about the Alabama Crimson Tide. You're listening to On the Line. Stand this on the line. Number to call 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. Auburn football schedule analysis series. Alabama Crimson tied up today as we wrap up that series. We're on to the running back room right now in an in-depth conversation about Brian Robinson Jr., the projected starter for the Alabama Crimson Tide this year in the backfield. And I've gone some digging now on some of Brian Robinson's statistics from a year ago and Lance and I were discussing this running back room and, and, and comparatively speaking to them across college football we try and like normalize Alabama and, and some areas where maybe they're weaker at than others but even their weaker areas we, we maybe normalize it too much to average in college football even though it, it still would be better if they were treated if they, if they were given maybe as many carries as they should have because you, you think about how many carries a guy like Brian Robinson got last year or how many carries this running back room got versus how many pass attempts this team was taking at 4,402 pass attempts, you know? So, I mean, just the way in which they use running backs has been, uh, it, it kind of defers on a year-to-year basis, but the last two years they've been throwing the football a lot. Yeah, they definitely have, and that's something I was gonna that that I almost said is is something that you kind of said is honestly, if these running backs got uh, the touches that they would, in a normal offense or even in an Auburn style offense, I mean, they would, they would pop off. And Dylan was talking about some of the different running backs that Alabama's had in the past that have just been exceptional. Derek Henry, TJ Yeldon, Josh, uh, Josh Jacobs, you know, those guys have been exceptional and they've, they've, uh, they played pretty decently in the NFL. The thing that I'm concerned about with this group though, and it's definitely not talent. Absolutely not. Uh, Trey Sanders and Brian Robinson Jr., absolutely talented guys 100% and they may not get that workload it's just I think it's very similar to the Bryce Young situation is right now I don't want to grade them as elite because I know the talent is there I just haven't seen it and then at the same time I don't know if I'm going to see enough of it throughout the season because they're not going to get as many carries as honestly they should because they are really talented running backs but at the same time yeah, that's that's what they are is are exceptional running backs. So I think it is fair to grade this this room somewhere between a B and an A. If you want to call it an A, I think that's fair because again, Alabama recruits at an elite level and they play at an elite level. If you if you grade it as a B, I think that's also fair. Looking at some in depth statistics about Brian Robinson Jr. from a year ago, he was rated highly on PFF, extremely high, very close to Najee Harris in some of their statistics, but. Looking at one specific stat category, missed tackles forced. This is to me, this is independent of run blocking. Can you break tackles? Can you create your own space? That's a big way to evaluate running backs outside of how well the offensive line is blocking for you. And just for a barometer here, Najee Harris forced a missed tackle on 28% of his rush attempts. Brian Robinson Jr. did it at 25%. So he was right there. The guy who hurdled a Notre Dame quarterback was is only slightly better last year at, at breaking tackles than at least by percentage basis than, than Brian Robinson was a year ago. So that's an interesting statistic there on Brian Robinson Jr. that maybe uh, some people may not know about considering it's hard to ca- it's hard to count up 
missed tackles, but that is something that PFF counts. And then they also have an elusive rating, which take this for what you will as well, because I know a lot of people probably don't know about this if they don't have PFF, but only two points higher is Najee Harris in elusive rating at a 102.7. Brian Robinson was at a 100.3. There's not a lot there to like baseline that on PFF, but just know that you know how elusive Najee Harris was and his ability to break tackles and extend plays and create more space for himself. Brian Robinson was not far behind that. And I believe it, but like I was saying earlier, I didn't see it a whole lot uh, on film last season. I, I believe it, though, and I think I think he was – you can look back at that Ole Miss game as one of, the, one of the games where he was able to actually do that. He was able to get through some contact, but uh, – yeah, I, I I believe you, but at the same time, you know, I've seen I've seen in different moments uh through throughout the throughout his time last season where he wasn't able to do that. But you know what? He's talented enough to do it. I think if PFF says it and he's gonna be the guy heading into two thousand and twenty one, it's fair to say that he's elite. Something else that I find interesting as well, and and I'm not disagreeing with you here, just other fun facts here about Brian Robinson Jr. at running back. You talk about yards lost per attempt right so how many total yards did he lose last year and then divide that by how many total attempts he had last year brian robinson lost seven yards last season on 91 attempts so seven divided by 91 he lost a total of 0.07 yards per attempt Najee harris lost 21 total yards last year divide that by his amount of attempts which was 251 he lost 0.08 yards per attempt. Very slight. Once again, you're getting into minuscule numbers there. Both of those guys did not lose hardly any yards per carry whatsoever last season. But it is interesting to see that Brian Robinson was right there with Najee Harris. And that's the other thing about these Alabama running backs that make them great. They don't lose yards. Now, part of that you probably could put on the offense. A lot of that you could put on the offensive line, but I think that they're smart running backs. Well, let's talk about the offensive line here for a second. I think that obviously there's going to be a little bit of a shakeup on the line. They're losing their star center, Landon Dickerson. Evan Neal's most likely going to move from right tackle to left tackle. Uh, Chris Owens is an offensive lineman who filled in for Dickerson while he was injured during the playoffs. Owens did a pretty decent job. He's going to take over at center. And then Tommy Brown and Javion Cohen should enter the lineup. And then you've got uh, two really talented freshmen. If you pay attention at all to recruiting, you should know the name Tommy Brockermeyer. Uh, He's going to get some playing time as well. And then J.C. Latham. Uh, Alabama recruits insanely well on the offensive line and I believe in 2022 they've got a couple of other five stars coming in and I think they're both tackles but man oh man are they exceptional on the line and I think they're going to be exceptional uh this season as well if if, if we could give a unit an A plus meaning the best in college football I think that you you should definitely take a look at Alabama's offensive line because they are elite looking at this Alabama offensive line loaded up with talent just as good as it was last year despite the exits of a of a, of a couple it's going to reload again uh yeah i believe i believe it will reload so moving forward now let's get on to the defensive side of the ball and this is a unit that has been harped on the last couple of years with pete golding as defensive coordinator moving forward with this defensive side of the ball last year you saw him only give up 19 points allowed per game Jeremy Law was on with us yesterday of Radio Alabama Sports. He was saying Crimson Tide fans just want to just want to see this Alabama defense be best in the league. Is it going to be best in the league again this year? I don't 
No, because you're also looking at Georgia. I think I think it's I think it's safe to say that they're a top three unit in the SEC. Um, but I don't know if it's going. I don't know if right now if it's going to be the best. I think you could talk me into saying that it's the best. And I think it starts with this defensive line. Uh, you've got DJ Dale coming back, LeBron Ray. Uh, you know they've lost some of their luster. Alabama has on the defensive line because you remember names like Jonathan Allen and all these all these different guys in the past that have just been absolutely absolute monsters. Quinn and Williams on the defensive line, uh, but I but whenever you think of Alabama's defensive line now, at least for me, I don't think of that dominant uh, first round overall uh, first round pick. Uh, that that is just scary to match up against but I think they are still solid they do recruit really well still on the defensive side of the football you're bringing back two starters from that line that uh played a played a pretty big part and only given up 113 rushing yards per game last season that was 70th nationally so I think it's fair to say that the line is or defensive line is an A honestly a lot of positions on this Alabama team uh like it's from a talent perspective across the board A but and the defensive line is no exception Darian Mathis is one of the returning starters that is going with Alabama to media days. And you say, you know, you, you look at some of the hot names that left to go on to the NFL over these years. This is a defensive line at the moment that is looking for its star. There's no shortage of talent there for someone to turn into a star. And pretty much every year, someone new turns into a star on the line. It could be Fidaria Mathis. It could be DJ Dale, who I thought played really well in the national title game and, and throughout the college football playoff. It could be DJ Dale. It could be LeBron Ray, who's now back from an injury. LeBron Ray was one of the was one of the top recruits in the country at the time when he committed to Alabama. You just pick one on the D-line, you know, like any one of these guys could turn into the next star. And that's what's scary about this group, because the way I view the defensive line right now is the way I looked at the defensive backfield a year ago. I saw inexperience. I didn't know if there was a leader back there. I didn't know if there was somebody that could turn the, the game on its head. And then guess what happened? Alabama secondary turned into one of the best in the SEC. And that's exactly what very well could happen here with the defensive line. There is raw potential that is ready to materialize to be, once again, one of the best units in the SEC. Let's move up a unit to the linebacking core. And I think that along with this secondary, I think it's the, it's the, it could potentially be uh, a strength of this Alabama team overall. They're bringing back a three out of their four starters from last season. They got Christopher Allen, Christian Harris, and Will Anderson Jr. returning Looking at what Christopher Allen was able to do last season, he led the SEC in tackles for loss as a part of his 41 tackles on the season. He had 13, 40, he had 41 total tackles. 13 of them were tackles for loss. That percentage is insane. He also had six sacks to go with five quarterback pressures. Uh, he had two forced fumbles and a fumble recovery. You look at what Christian Harris was able to do. Uh, he was second on the defense last season with 79 tackles, including seven for a loss and four and a half sacks, six quarterback pressures, two pre pass breakups, and an interception. And then you look at Will Anderson, who I believe is will, will occasionally line up on the edge uh, for Alabama. He finished third in the SEC in sacks with seven, while also ranking third in tackles for loss with ten and a half started every single game in his first season, and he had 52 total tackles. I mean, this linebacking core, they were incredibly productive, and they bring back almost everybody. And I say this often. The biggest jump that we see in development is from the first year playing to the second year playing. Not necessarily freshman to sophomore, but first year of full-time playing to second year of full-time playing. And Will Anderson was just a true freshman last year. This year, 
he's still a freshman considering it was a COVID year, but he's a sophomore and playing experience. We're going to see a huge jump. Will Anderson is going to be one of those guys who takes over on this defense. Christian Harris is still lift, listed as a sophomore. They don't forget about Chris Allen being able to get into the backfield as well. He had six sacks last year. This this group right here, Auburn's linebackers are great. Alabama's are the best in the SEC. Yeah, they are absolutely fantastic. Let's go ahead and move up to the – we didn't cover receivers, and we'll get to those in a minute, but the final unit of this defense, the the, the defensive back position, I think it's fa- safe to say that uh, this unit is at an A. Wouldn't you agree, Noah? The defensive backs? Yes. Without a doubt. And this group really emerged last year out of inexperience. Now, the one question I have about the defensive backfield at the moment – is which one of these guys are, are there? Are there any lockdown guys over here? You know, Josh Job and, and Jordan Battle and and Malachi Moore. All of them showed up and, and had their individual like breakout game where they'd have like one exceptional game in the year. And all the other ones, they were solid. They didn't really take any steps back, but it was more of a collective effort from this defensive backfield. There's a lot of depth there. You're adding Kool Aid McKinstry to the defensive backfield, which is. Great to, to great to be able to insert a true freshman amongst such an experienced group like this where there's not a whole lot of pressure put on McKinstry. This is a deep unit, and that's what makes them so good, and, and they don't give up a whole lot of pass yards per game opposing quarterbacks, only threw for 58.1% completion percentage. Now, that is the worst mark that they've seen in the last seven seasons, but you talk about the way that the game is changing in college football, the the it's to be expected. Those numbers are going to continue to increase across college football. And from a passing yards allowed per game perspective with the way that the game is changing, I'm I'm thoroughly impressed with this group. They were young last year or really inexperienced is the way that I should say it because they did have a couple years of the program. They were inexperienced last year. This year is that second full year of playing experience. I expect it to get even better. These are the two biggest factors in my mind, and I'm right there with you. One of them is an experience for these different defensive backs, Josh Job, Jordan Bell, Malachi Moore, and then like you mentioned, Kool-Aid McKinstry coming in. You said that it's always great to be able to trust a true freshman enough to start in your defensive backfield or at least be a factor. It's it's always great to be able to have a guy named Kool-Aid that you can be able to put into the the starting rotation and actually get him uh, some, some playing time. I think he's going to be a star for the Crimson Tide this season and a couple of seasons to come but like you mentioned uh, the the passing yards allowed per game last season were not incredibly impressive 239.2 passing yards allowed per game 70th nationally but again also like you mentioned the game's changing and you're going to give up uh, passing yards if even if you are Alabama but here's the thing also not only were they inexperienced but the SEC was just weird last season and the fact that uh, everybody was giving up a ton of passing yards. So I think those two factors combined are going to be able to benefit this uh, Alabama defensive back room to where statistically they look impressive and then on the field whenever you watch tape, uh, they're going to be dominant. So I think they are going to be able to make a significant jump there and I think this defense is going to be able to hold its own top three unit in the SEC easily and you could you could say that they are the best in the in the Southeastern Conference. Take me through special teams. Special teams, I believe they bring back one of the best kickers in the country in Will Reichard. Uh, he never missed. He's not, not missed an extra point on the 98 times that he took uh, an extra point last season. 84 extra points, and four, or, or rather on the ent- all the kicks that he had last season. 98 total kicks, 84 extra points, 14 field goals. He was 14 for 14. Uh, Charlie Scott should be the punter. 
uh, who he took over for, I believe it was, it was, it was, uh, who what was the name? Hang on. Like I got it. Yeah, I got it right in front of me. Sam Johnson. He took over his starting job at the punter uh, spot. And then Slade Bolden is expected to be returning punts. Uh, McKinstry might get a shot at it. Christian Story might get a shot at it. And then something that Dylan noted uh, while we were at break is that Jaheel Billingsley, the tight end, was actually returning kicks for the Tide last season. It's going to be interesting to see if they do that again. But as special teams, it was pretty good last year. And if you've you've got a good kicker at Alabama – uh, you're doing something right because they've not been able to uh, to put it through the uprights uh, in the past few seasons. So I think it's fair to say that this unit's an A. Especially I, when you've got a kicker that could kick it as far as Riker can and that he's going to make it with consistency. That That's what I care about most. Are you going to make the most of your – I know we've talked a little bit about kick returns. I'm, I, I'm okay with a special teams unit not having as much in the way of kick and punt returns as long as they're solid – kicking as long as they're solid with field goal kicking and they can put the ball consistently through the end zone and then punting as well as long as you are as long as you're generating consistent points on special teams where you're not hurting your team and you are consistently able to punt with accuracy and get 40 yards on those punts like over and over and over again i'm happy with your special teams unit i i i you're not gonna in today's day and age how they have handicapped the return game so it's more important about field goal kicking and Alabama checks that box yeah that's what I was about to say is you know if you're able to knock it through the uprights as far as field goals go that's awesome if you're able to punt it well that's cool but I don't really care what you're doing in the punt and kick return game because I know this offense is still going to be able to move the ball downfield let's take a quick break here when we come back we wrap up the Tuesday or the Wednesday edition of the show Central Alabama. It's been a fun show today. And if you missed any of it, go and find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Before we get out of here, let's run through what's on TV tonight. On CBS at 7, it's the third episode of the new season of Big Brother. Fox's lineup is cooking shows with Master Chef at 7. And then on a new episode of Crime Scene Kitchen at 8, the bakers head back to the kitchen for a new dessert challenge. Some movie selections for tonight. Let's let the debate begin. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Watch it tonight at 7 on AMC. Everybody loves the Minions. Despicable Me 2 is on Freeform at 7 also. In live sports, the NBA Finals is back with Game 4 between the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Suns lead 2-1 in the series with tonight's game having the chance to tip the scales in favor of Phoenix or tie the series. Catch Game 4 at 8 on ABC. The WNBA All-Star Game is on ESPN at 6. CONCACAF Gold Cup Soccer is back to Group A with Trinidad and Tobago against El Salvador at 6.30 on FS1. And then following it at 9, Mexico and Guatemala wrap up the night. That's it for what's on TV tonight. Lance, we only got a couple minutes left, so I'm okay with saying this. I want to know. Let the debate begin. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Uh, you, you might hate me for the Actually, this the entire audience is going to hate me for this. I've never seen it. Somehow I knew. Somehow I knew that you had never seen this. Deep down, you were already disappointed. I'm so sorry. I, I, based on what I know, just like from people talking about it, I'll say no, it's not. I will say no as well, 
But the, the reason why, and I have to pose this question to you, why? Because it's set at Christmas Eve, which there's a lot of Christmas scenery in it, but does that make it a Christmas movie? Because it's not really about Christmas or anything Christmas themed. That's why I, I, I say it's not a Christmas movie either. But I've gotten into debates with people about this, and they they say without a doubt, like that is what they're watching at Christmas time. Yeah, well, like you just said, it's not it's not about Christmas. So while it's set during Christmas, it's not about Christmas. It's about something completely different. Dylan's got some thoughts on it though. It is one hundred percent a Christmas movie. One hundred percent. I knew that you would say that as well, Dylan. Why is it? Well, I mean, it takes place during Christmas time. Not every Christmas movie has to have like a theme around Christmas. But it's, it's at a Christmas party. Name another Christmas movie like Die Hard. Jaws Four. Takes so place you think that's Christmas. a Christmas movie? It takes place on Christmas, even though it's in the Bahamas. All right, everybody, that's how we're going to end the show today. (laughs) Dylan says that Jaws 4 and Die Hard are Christmas movies. Dang. (laughs) That's it for the Wednesday edition of On the Line. The Drive with Bill Cameron coming up after us from 4 to 6. Stay tuned for that. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. You know where to find us.